last Sunday as I was leaving, um, somebody came up to me and they said, hey, um, you hear about this storm that's coming in? So I don't know what you're talking about. And then they started telling me about this, this super storm that was going to be rolling in, this Juno. And, and they started talking about like these feet and feet of snow and the power and electricity was going to go out and it was going to be mass pillaging and rioting and chaos and people running around on fire. And I was like, oh my goodness. And can I just tell you that as a Texan, like if you want to freak me out, that is overkill. All right. Like you could have said it's going to snow. Like that's, that's all it took. Half an inch of snow freaked me out just enough. You didn't have to take it that far. All right. So for future reference, half an inch of snow, that's all it's required. Um, and, and I'm not even kidding about that. You know, in Texas, if you get half an inch of snow, like Dallas, it will shut down. Absolutely shut down. Nothing will move until it is completely melted away. And there's, there's a reason for that. A couple of reasons. One is because we are completely unprepared in any way, shape or form. There is no salt. Period. I mean, you out like a salt shaker if you want salt. There's no salt, and there's there's no uh, no snow plows or anything like that. And and the other reason is because black ice is a real problem there because we have these things. I want to let you in on this. We have these things called overpasses everywhere, and they are connected to these things called highways, and they have multiple lanes, like 16 lanes, to help alleviate traffic. You wouldn't know about that up here, as far as I can tell. But I just want to let you know that that's how we do things in Texas. And uh, if you have an opportunity to vote for, you know, more lanes at some point, keep that in mind. But anyway, so that's what happens in Dallas. There's no way everything shuts down. And so you don't have to scare me with a whole lot of, of, of snow. That was enough for me. So we got up Monday morning and we didn't have power. And at this point, I'm even more freaked out because I'm like, wow, this is such a super storm. The power is out before it even gets here. It's amazing. It's like scared. And so we're like, okay, well, we have no power. We have no heat. And the temperature's dropping. And so we've got little kids. And we're like, well, what do we do? What, what do we do? So, so we're like, well, obviously we go to Chick-fil-A because they've got heat and internet and stuff. And so, okay, so we're Texans. And we're like, all right, if we leave and this blizzard rolls in, like, will we even make it back to our house? I don't even know how, what, what's going to happen here. So, so I'm, I kid you not, we pack up like Lewis and Clark. Like we're like going to Chick-fil-A and we're like, all right, we'll throw everything in because we might not make it back to the house. If this goes bad, we may just drive south. We'll just keep going until we see sunlight. That's, that's the plan we've got. So we, we pack everything up and we step, we drive out onto the road and it's like, this is it. It must be coming, right? This, this is the calm before the storm. We go to Chick-fil-A, spend several hours there. We, we make it back home. Everything's okay. But I'm still, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm stressed out of my mind. Because I'm like, if our electricity doesn't come on, and, and we don't have heat, and there's like feet of snow outside, like what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And so eventually, there's this one magical moment. This one magical moment. And some of you, you've been without power for weeks. So, I mean, I don't know how you survive. And I, Suddenly, everything starts beeping and turning on in our house, and it's like, oh my gosh, thank you, Lord, we're saved, let the snow come, we have heat, it's all going to be okay. But I am not kidding, I was stressed out. I was freaked out, I was like, what are we going to do? And clearly, I was not alone, looking at the national media, looking at everything that's going on in this country. I've got people from Texas texting me, are you guys alive? You know, it's like... How many feet are out there? And I'm like, ah, like four or five inches maybe, you know? And they're like, what? Everybody is all freaked out. Everybody's all scared. And I get that. I get that. 
I really do, because you know what? This is, th- the world is a scary place. You've got, you've got snowstorms. What do they call Nor'easterners? Did I say that right? Nor'east, is that right? You got cli- the fact that you can distinguish between that and a clipper, what I've learned here, that's terrifying to me. Okay, we've got, we've got snowstorms, we've got tornadoes and hurricanes and monsoons and, and, and firestorms and all this kind of thing. And that's just the kids stuff, right? I mean, you throw the human element into this and it gets, it gets downright terrifying. I mean, you think about ISIS, you think about, you know, Mother Russia over there trying to take back the motherland or whatever's going on there. You've got, you know, Iran developing nuclear weapons. You've got, um, North Korea doing whatever it is that North Korea does. Right. And here in the States, it's like, okay, well, what, what's the economy doing? Oil prices are going down, which is great for heating my house, not maybe so great for the stock market. Like, how's this all going to play out? The world is a scary place. It is. It's scary. And life is scary. Life is scary. I mean, you, you get laid off. How are you going to pay your mortgage? Where's the, where's the funds going to come from? You, you're waiting for that, that call from the doctor and you're going, okay, how's this going to play out for me? Your teenager starts driving, okay? Life is scary. Life is scary. And we, you and I, as a people, man, as a society, we are scared people, aren't we? we we're crippled by fear. We're paralyzed by fear. We're obsessed with fear. Fear sells stuff. And you just watch the nightly news. It's like they come on there and they're like, tell you the one thing that's going to instantly kill you in your house. Story at 11. What happens if it kills me before 11? I always wondered that, right? What if I don't make it? My house is a scary place. Think about any of the last several elections. I see the underlying campaign motto. I know there's some rhetoric about hope and change, and I don't mean any disrespect to President Obama at all, and I mean that, but understand that the underlying campaign slogan is that the world is ending, but if you elect me, I'll save it. The world is going to crash and burn, and if you elect my opponent, they're just going to usher it in. It's going it's to get there that much faster, but if you elect me, it's going to be safe. Be afraid. Be afraid. See, it's a scary world, and so we lie awake at night stressed out of our minds, and we are worried about what the stock market's going to do, whether or not we're going to have our job in a few months, if the polar ice caps are going to melt, you know, how we're going to pay for college, what if little Johnny flunks math and he can't get into college. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can be obsessed with that are scary. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. We are crippled by fear, but here's the problem. And it's not just that irrational fear... Uh, leads to bad decision-making, and it leads to stress that, that studies will tell you lead to all kinds of, of health problems, and you're going to die sooner, okay? That's bad enough. But here, here's the other problem. When we are paralyzed with fear, you and I become essentially useless to anyone else around us. We are of very little good, very little value to our neighbors, to our friends, to our our community, to anything else that's going on around us. And, and that's bad enough whether you believe in God or not. But can I tell you that as believers, right, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that Satan knows, he knows that one of the most effective ways to essentially take us out of the game is to get us obsessed, fixated, focused on something that can really scare us. And I get all my time and my energy and my attention, everything gets poured into that, 
And over here, God's going, hey, I've got this mission. I've got this kingdom. I want you to be part of this. And we're going, yeah, I, I can't deal with that. I'm dealing with what's going on over here. Like, well, I love what Paul said during communion about Cambodia. And he sees this and he's like, oh man, I moved to action. Well, look, we're not going to be any good to people in Cambodia or Phoenixville if we are obsessed with, fixated upon our fear. The things that keep us up at night. See, if we are going to be a people, a church that is a blessing here and around the world, then we cannot, we cannot, we must not be afraid. It will suck our resources. It will tap our strength and our energy. Everything will, it will eat us alive. And so what God wants is he wants to take us away from whatever that fear is. He wants us to direct, redirect our attention so that we're not obsessed with this. Our eyes aren't focused on this. We're not aimed at this all the time. And he says, let that go. And instead he says, I want you to look at Jesus. It's not that we give up living It's not that if you're dealing with hard things that suddenly like you're in denial and you're just going to ignore them. Look, we deal with life. We live life, but we're not crippled. We're not paralyzed by the fear of the unknown, of what might happen, of how things might play out. And instead, God says, get your eyes off that and look at my son, because that's what's going to drive out fear. All right. So that's what we're headed this morning. This idea that if we are going to be of use to God, if we are going to be building his kingdom, if we're going to be part of his mission, then we cannot We must not be afraid. All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Philippians 1. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week. And if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We're going to put it right here. And we're going to be looking at this letter from Paul. Remember where Paul is. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's essentially waiting to find out whether he lives or dies. Right? He's waiting for his trial, and they're going to say, Paul, you get to live, you get to go free, get to enjoy life, take a few more breaths, or Paul, we're going to behead you. We're going to take your head off. We're going to kill you. So if there's ever anyone who had a good reason to be afraid, if there's any, ever a reason for somebody to have an excuse to stay up at night, anxious and worried about their future and what was going to happen, it's this guy, Paul. But notice what he says. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he keeps going. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, so here, here's what Paul's saying. Here, I'm going to go this way. Here's what he's saying. He says, look, I am confident. I'm confident that because you believers in Philippi, who he's writing to, you are praying for me and God is going to help me that I'm going to be delivered. So we might read that and say, okay, fantastic. I I get that. Paul, you are confident that God is going to make sure that you get out of prison. You're going to be delivered out of the hands of the Romans, out of prison and and, and go on with your life. You're going to be released. That's what he's talking about, right? Not so fast because look at what he says in his very next breath. Whoops. He says, whether by life or by death, his eager expectation, he's talking about life and death in this context. We're going to get to this verse a little bit more in depth in just a moment. But just understand here that what he's saying is, okay, I'm going to be delivered. But now he's talking about delivered whether he lives or dies. So which is it, Paul? How are you going to be delivered? By living or dying? And he says, yes. Either one. Either one. See what Paul understands here is that regardless of what happens, whether he lives or dies, that God is in control. And he says, either way, it works out for my good. 
See, I'm either going to be killed and I'm going to be ushered in the presence of God or I'm going to be released and I get to experience life with Jesus that way. Either way. Just either way this plays out, it plays out for my good. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about being delivered, uh, being executed doesn't usually factor in. Like, that's just not part of the equation for me. When I think about being delivered, I think, no, that means I'm going to get out of prison or whatever that bad circumstance is for me. I'm going to get out and I'm going to go on and live my life. And it's going to be great and beautiful and wonderful from that point on. But that's not Paul's attitude here. He says, hey, whatever happens for me, whether I live or die, that's deliverance for me. That's God working good in my life. And for me, okay, I just want to be honest. For me, this is where the struggle comes in. This is where I feel it. Because I have had enough storms in my life. I've had enough uncertainty and fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? How's this going to play out that affects me, helps, affects my wife and my kids? Right? I've had enough of those that I've been very, very uncomfortable, shall we say. I've been very scared. And I've had good, well-meaning people come to me and say, hey, Lucas, don't you know Romans 8.28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I say, yeah, you know what? I get that. I know that verse. I've actually heard it before. But just explain to me what this good means right here. Like define that good for me. Because you realize that the way that God defines good may not go according to my plan. Like the way that God sees good in my life and how it's going to work out for good in me may not be the happy, joyful, wonderful life that I am in, intending for myself. Like that doesn't line up with my idea of good. You guys get that, right? Like I don't want to freak you out, but understand when it says that, that God is going to work all things together for good, his working all things out together for good for you may look like terminal illness. It's not that the illness is good, but it may mean that God is going to use that because he's going to bring you into greater dependence upon him. It may be that for you, God's perfect good will for your life, his willed good for you is to struggle with addiction because through that you're going to know what it means to walk with Christ closely. See, the only thing that we understand the, the only thing that God promises to us in Scripture, if we are his children, if we are believers, is that he's going to see us safely home. He doesn't promise us long lives, great careers, happiness, healthy children. He doesn't promise us any of that stuff. All he says is, if you're mine, I'm going to get you all the way home. And that leaves a lot of room for tragedy and trial and heartache and loss. And he doesn't promise to keep me safe from any of that. See, our God is not safe. He's not safe. You remember um, in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I love that book. I was, I was reading that book uh, to my five-year-old uh, last year uh, with a really bad English accent just to make it authentic. And um, you should try that. It's really fun. And so I, I'm reading this book, and one of my favorite parts is when the kids are being taken. Remember Mr. and Mrs. Beaver? They're going to take the kids to go meet Aslan for the first time. And along the way, they discover that Aslan, they didn't realize this, Aslan is not human. And so they're like, wait, 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 you're telling me that Aslan, this, this king, everything, he's, he's not human? And they're like, oh no, he didn't, didn't you listen to us? He's the king of the beasts. He's a lion. He's not human. He's a lion. 
And so Susan, she's, she asked the obvious question. Well, wait, wait, wait. If he's a lion, then, then is he tame? Is he safe? And the beavers look at each other and laugh and they go, oh, goodness, no, did he? That, that may have been more Scottish. I don't know. But anyway, I'm not good at it. All right. I said that. He says, oh, no. Weren't you listening? He's not safe. But he's good. Our God is not safe. If you thought you were getting safe, man, you, you signed up for the wrong gig. Our, our God is not safe. This is the God of the universe who, who flung creation into existence. This is the God of the universe who, who created us. And when everything went bad, he said, okay, I'm going to rescue you by becoming a baby. And then growing up to die for the sins of the world. This is a God who stormed the very gates of hell. Our God is not safe. This is a God who says, if you want to follow me, then you've got to pick up your cross. Let's go. Our God is not safe, but he is good. His desire, he is absolutely bent on making sure that you and I get the absolute best. And that is to become more and more and more and more like him. And so if we're going to pick up our cross, if we're going to follow him, then it means that we have to surrender our imaginary control. We have to let it go. We have to say, look, who are we kidding? We don't have control anyway. God's going to do what he wants. But instead we say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And as best we can, we try to get in step with our Lord and Savior and follow him instead of him dragging us around all the time. If we're going to follow him, if we're going to know what it means to, to live life the way he intended it, if we want to know that depth of relationship and that, that intimacy that comes with walking with Jesus through hard circumstances as well as the easy, then we have to get in step with him. We have to let go. We have to surrender and say, okay, God, it's your good that I'm after. Whatever you say not by how I define it. And so Paul says, this is going to work out for my deliverance. It's going to work out for my good, whether I live or die. Either way. And notice, it's not really a struggle for Paul anymore. At least it doesn't sound like it. Not at least in this moment. I mean, look at what he says. He says, it is my eager expectation. This guy isn't struggling. This guy isn't like, okay, God, twist my arm. No, look, he's bought in. This guy is fully invested in the plan of God. And look what he says. My eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, this is my expectation. This is my hope. He's not afraid which is what you would expect for someone in his situation. He says, no, I'm expectant, I'm, I'm hopeful. And what is he hopeful and expectant of? That he will bring honor to Christ, whether he lives or dies. In his life or by his death, Christ will be honored. Okay, so how exactly, how exactly is he going to honor Christ in his life or his death? Because it'd be really easy to think here, okay, so what he's saying is that when he's going to go before the Romans and he's going to testify and he's going to die this noble death and they're all going to be like, oh, wow, this Paul guy, man, he had incredible faith. I need to get to know this God more because that's probably not what Paul actually has in mind here. See, the Romans 
were actually not that impressed when somebody died for something that they didn't understand. That wasn't impressive to them. That wasn't something to be honored. That was just stupid. If you read some of the letters between the Roman leaders during the time of the Christian persecution, like they're writing about these Christians and they're not like, wow, these Christians, they are putting us to shame. I can't believe how loyal and strong they are. They just won't recant. I can't understand it. They're not impressed. You know what they're writing? What is wrong with these morons? All they, we're just asking them to make a little sacrifice, say that Caesar is God. Like how hard is that? For them, this isn't honorable. It's just dumb. So for Paul here, understand that his first priority here is not the people that he's talking to, is not being a witness. His first priority here is that he would not be ashamed when he stands before his Savior face to face. His first priority here is that when he stands before Jesus, he say, hey, my life honored him. My life was an honor to Christ. See, when I stand up here to preach, when Paul gets up here to preach, you know what we talk about? That this is not for you. It's not. It's for God. It's for my Savior. It's for my Lord. This is my act of worship. This is my sacrifice that I bring to him every week and say, God, this is yours. I do this for you. And even if this place was empty, I would still preach just as passionately. Now, do I care that you hear it? Do I hope that God uses it in your lives? Absolutely, but I can't control any of that. So what I do is before every time I get up here, I'm, I'm, I'm praying to God that he will open up your hearts and your ears and that you will be impacted, that his word will penetrate your hearts, that he will do what I can't do. But that's not my first priority. It's secondary. My first priority is that the words, my life, my actions, everything is for the glory of God. And some of you... Some of you have this idea that, hey, because you're not a public Christian, because you're not a missionary or whatever, that it doesn't really matter how you live because nobody's really looking at you, right? It's like, hey, you know what? Nobody really knows that I'm a Christian. I just go about doing my day. And so I'm not really living for the gospel, but I'm not opposed to the gospel. I'm just neutral. I'm just kind of doing my thing. I'm under the radar. And can I just tell you, listen, you don't have to convince me, but let me know how that goes when you're standing face to face with Jesus. Like when you're standing there and he says, so what was your life all about? And you're like, you know, Jesus, I, I love you and all. And you know that. And I know I didn't really like make sacrifices for you. I didn't really pursue a relationship with you. But you know, I didn't, I didn't drag you down either. So we're cool, right? Let me know how that goes. Because in the book of Revelation, what does Jesus say to one of the churches who tries that neutral thing? He said, hey, you are neither hot nor cold. And I'm going to spit you out. Doesn't sound good to me. As believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, he is our Lord. He is our God. Even if we were in a vacuum and nobody ever saw us, if we were living on a desert island and we made no impact on anybody else, we would still live for him. Our lives should still be honoring to him because he's our God. So that when we face him, and we're standing there, we will not be ashamed. We will not be embarrassed. But he will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, having said that, having said that, if we think that nobody else is watching, then we're kidding ourselves. You think that nobody's paying attention to how you live 
wake up, man. You got kids, you got friends, you got a spouse, you got coworkers, you got neighbors. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then understand that you have a responsibility to reflect him as accurately as possible, his person, his beauty, his grace. Because people are learning about our God through looking at us. Man, that's humbling, isn't it? That's a sobering thought. And so if I lose my temper and I yell at my kids and I'm flipping off people on the highway and I am paralyzed with fear when I look out into the world, then they're going to say, hey, what kind of a God is this? Like, how great can my God be? If I'm paralyzed by fear over whatever it is in my life, like, how great can he be? If he's truly powerful, if he's truly God, then, man, I should be free from that. And this is what happens. See, we wonder why people are not interested in our God. is because they're looking at us and they're deducing, well, this is what their God must be like. And they go, thanks, but no thanks. Count me out. If we live and we love and we look like everybody else, then how is our God unique? See, we have a responsibility that we're supposed to look and to love like Christ we're supposed to love the way he loved. We're supposed to, to, to have, be gracious the way he's gracious. We're supposed to pour out our lives the way he poured out our life, his life for us. And when we do that, then people will sit up and they will take notice. This is our call. First to God. First to God. If we were completely living in a vacuum and nobody ever saw anything that we did, we would still live in lives that are honoring to God. But knowing that people are watching us, it's even more important that when they walk away from us, that God's name will not be tarnished, but that it will be held in even higher esteem. It will be glorified. And they'll say, man, I don't know who that God is, but I've seen how they are not afraid. I've seen the way that they love. I've seen the way that they live. And okay, there's something there. This is what Paul's saying. He says, if we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to live those kind of lives, he says it's going to take courage. Full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored. Full courage. Not a little courage. Not some courage. And it's going to take courage. It's not for the faint of heart. Because there's going to be times when you and I, we're going to be faced with decisions where we have to decide whether it's going to be our reputation, our happiness, our ease, our comfort, or whether we're going to put Christ first. There's going to be times when it's much safer to simply allow Jesus' reputation to suffer and to say, hey, Jesus, you know what? I'm going to sit this one out. But don't worry, I got you next time. You know, I love you. See, it's not for the faint of heart because it may mean honoring him with life or with death. And this is what Paul says. Actually, excuse me, I'm going to start here. I love what Kate Chesterton says about courage. He says, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. The one who wants to live must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. So a police officer who dives into the line of fire in order to save someone's life, he doesn't have a death wish He's not trying to kill himself. No, what he's trying to do is he's trying to save a life. But to do that, he has to embrace the possibility of his own death. A, a child who, who leaps from a third-story building that's on fire into the arms of a firefighter, that child doesn't have a death wish. 
That child isn't trying to commit suicide. That child is embracing life. And so to do that, she has to embrace death. The possibility that maybe firefighter misses. Something goes wrong. And see, this sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Because what does he say? He says, hey, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. You want to you have life, then you've got to lay down your life. And this is what Paul says in verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, look, whether I live or whether I die, I'm going to get Jesus. If I live, I'm going to go on. I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to experience him through my life, through fruitful labor, as we read earlier. This is what it means to live for Christ. But he says, even if I die, it's gain for me because I'm going to get more Jesus. And Jesus, for Paul, is synonymous with life. So understand here that when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul doesn't have a death wish. He's not suicidal. He's saying, man, well, you know what I really want? I want to live. I want to live, whether it means in this life or in the next. Either way, I want to live. He's not going to die for the sake of dying. If he dies, it's for the sake of living because Jesus is his life. So Paul will gladly and joyfully embrace death if it means he gets to be with Jesus. Either way, he gets more of Jesus. Now, I want to say something about death here because this is really important, okay? There's such a misunderstanding about death in our society. And if we're going to live the life that Christ has called us to live, then we've got to be clear on this. Death is not our friend. Death is not a natural part of life. Death is not a beautiful thing in and of itself. Death is not part of the circle of life as sung by Disney characters. Death is an enemy. And it's evil. And one day it will be destroyed to the glory of God. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, and in his sovereignty, he has repurposed, he has reprogrammed death. So it's basically undoing itself. So the death that was intended simply to lead us more into more and more death because it's a result of sin, instead it actually takes us to the, to the foot of our Savior as believers. And so death suddenly is not what it once was. It is different now. It's been changed. Now, death in and of itself is still evil, but God has changed it. It's using it against itself to undo its very purpose. So it's not leading us into death. It's leading us into life. So let me give you an illustration of this. Okay, so when I was 11, I had a parasite. This will wake you up. Anybody ever had a parasite? It sucks, all right? Really horrible, like puking all the time. I was 11 years old. I lost like 30 pounds, which means when you're 11, you lose 30 pounds like you are in bad shape, okay? I went swimming in a really nasty pool in Mississippi. Didn't go well for me, okay? Just let that be a lesson to you. Um, and, and so what happened was I go to the doctor and I, I, I can't walk across the room without throwing up. This is how bad it is. And they're going to, you know, put me on IVs and all this kind of stuff. And, and they go, okay, we think it's a parasite. Here's what we're going to do. This is how we're going to save your life with this parasite. We're going to poison you. Literally. Because the parasite eats whatever you're eating. And so what they did to save my life was that they gave me little bits of poison. And they poisoned the parasite. And so poison that should kill me instead has been repurposed. And now it's used to save my life. This is death. This is death. That for the believer, when we die, our bodies die. They go into the ground. They're burned up. Whatever happens to us, our bodies are no more. But our soul goes on to be with Christ. And so death now is escorting us to the threshold of eternal life. 
Because being with Christ, even in what Paul's talking about here, seeing Christ face to face, going to be with his Savior, this is not the end game. That's not the end of it. See, that's just the beginning. Our great hope, what we're longing for is for recreation, that when Christ returns, God is going to recreate all of this earth, that we're like Christ was raised into glory, that you and I are going to be in physical bodies. We're going to be able to hug each other and laugh together and eat and drink and the whole nine yards. This isn't some pie in the sky. We're in it, you know, singing on a cloud somewhere with our little harps. That's not what we're talking about here. This is recreation. This is the, the hope of the resurrection. And so in the meantime, though, death has been repurposed. And so it serves as a reminder that sin is still a powerful, in powerful work in this world. But even though it is evil, it is bad, it is the result of sin, God is using it. And so for the believer, if you have placed your faith in Christ, it is like a snake eating its own tail. And it's going to lead us right to the threshold of eternal life. We will see our Savior face to face. And so Paul says, hey, for me to live is Christ but to die is gain. It's advantageous for Paul. It's gain for Paul because what does he want? Is it to live or die? It's Christ. And Christ is his life. If he lives, he gets more of Jesus. If he dies, he gets more of Jesus. Either way, he wins. If you have not figured this out yet, Paul has a serious Jesus problem. He is a serious Jesus addict. The guy cares about one thing and one thing alone. He cares about Jesus. That's the end of his list, period. There's nothing else. Paul, do you have any hobbies? No, not really. Do you count church planting? No. Do you count telling people about Jesus? No. Nope, no hobbies. I mean, just a hunch. I'm just guessing that you would not find Paul watching a lot of TV on the weekends. Like this guy is not going to be binging on Downton Abbey or playing his Xbox for 36 hours straight. Like that's just not Paul. He is obsessed with Jesus. And so the reason that he's not afraid, the reason that he has expectation and hope and courage, the reason that he has no fear is because he is obsessed. He is fixated on Christ. And how do you scare a guy like that? How do you scare a guy like that? Paul, we're going to beat you up. We're going to stone you. We're going to flog you. We're going to make your life miserable. We're going to mess you up. And he says, man, Jesus suffered. I'm going to experience Jesus through my suffering. Thank you, God. Paul, we're going to, we're going to let you go and we're going to lock you up or excuse me, we're going to let you go or lock you up either way. He says, remember, we talked about this last week. Hey, either way, I get to experience Jesus. If I'm alive, I'm experiencing Jesus. I'm telling people about him. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I get more of Jesus. Paul, we're going to kill you. Fantastic. I'm going to go home to Lord tonight. So you can't scare a guy like that. He's like an addict, okay? He's like an addict with, with a stash hidden in every room. You, you lock him in this room, he's got more Jesus. You lock him in this room, he's got more Jesus. You lock him in this room, he's got more Jesus. You cannot scare someone like that. There's no fear. Remember in, in the Gospels when Peter is walking on water? Remember the story? And they're out in the boat, and Peter's in the boat, and Jesus starts walking on water, and he sees him, and Peter says, Lord, call me to come out to you. And Jesus says, okay, Peter, come on out. Just, just imagine this for a moment. Because for a few remarkable steps, Peter is literally walking on water. I mean, this is the miraculous. So he takes a step out and he's looking at Jesus. And he takes another step. 
He's looking at Jesus and he takes another step. He's looking at Jesus. And then what happens? He starts to look around and he sees the wind and the waves and he gets scared. And he starts to sink. And so Jesus comes and he saves his life and he gets him in the boat. And what does he say? He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. See, Paul, he is so focused on Christ and he sees nothing else. You're going to beat me. You're going to persecute me. You're going to kill me. Whatever. It's Jesus. The wind and the waves, he notices them. They're there. But he's transfixed on his Lord. So there's no fear. And because of that, because of that, he is of great benefit to others. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall not, which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. I want to see my Lord face to face. This is what he wants, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says, look, I'm not afraid. And because he's not afraid, He's got the resources, he's got the time, he's got the energy. He's not, he's not being sapped, he's not being sucked out by all the things that he's scared of. He's not obsessed with whether he's going to get out of prison, whether he's going to stay in prison, whether he's going to live or die. What about those Philippian believers? What's going on with them? Or what about my church in Corinth? Or what's going on with all this stuff? He says, it's in God's hands. It's, God's going to use it all for my good. So because of that, I am free, free to love. No fear, love. He can live for other people. He has the resources to say, okay, I'm going to pour out my life for other people. Listen to me. It's like we said at the beginning, if you and I, if you and I are going to be of any benefit to the people of Phoenixville, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to the people in Cambodia, wherever God takes us, then we cannot be afraid. We cannot be afraid. Instead, we have to just want more Jesus. We have to be focused on him. We have to be transfixed with him. We have to be obsessed with him because perfect love drives out fear and Christ has perfectly loved us. He is our savior who died for us. It doesn't get more perfect than that. He wants our good. Does that mean that we're gonna be safe and happy all of our days? It means he's gonna make our lives exactly the way we want them? No, excuse me, no. He's not safe, but he's good. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Whatever's keeping you up at night, don't be afraid. You worried about paying your mortgage? Don't be afraid. You worried about the call from the doctor? Don't be afraid. You worried about the stock market? Don't be afraid. You worried about your job, your kids, your family, whatever it is, don't be afraid. Be a Jesus addict. Be a Jesus addict. You start to feel that fear rising up in your heart, you start to find yourself lying awake at night, man, you need an injection of Jesus into your life. You need to get into his word. You need to get to know him. You need to be transfixed with him and see again and again and again that he is the king of the universe who loved you so much that he would die for you. 
He's got this. You think he can't handle whatever is happening in your life or in this world? You think he can't handle ISIS? You think he can't handle the U.S. economy? You think he can't handle the polar ice caps melting? You think he can't handle whatever disease you've got? You think he can't handle your kids' problems at school? This is our King, our Lord, our Savior, who conquered sin and death and Satan. Trust me, he's got it. It's under control. He is good. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be a Jesus addict.